Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. It is May 4th. Uh, We will not be making Star Wars jokes on this episode of the podcast, Joe, um, but we are we're rolling on with our college baseball content later in the the show. We will be joined by Kansas state coach Pete Hughes. We're going to get into a little bit of talk about K state, a little bit of talk about Pete Hughes's background, which is truly fascinating um, from a football perspective. Really. He was a two sport athlete at Davidson and actually started his career as a two sport coach, which is in the baseball world, pretty rare. And so we're going to we're going to get into all of that with him, and then we're going to talk about our latest top twenty-five, which was a ranking of the best uniforms in college baseball. But before we get to all of that, Joe, how are you doing today? So you're not are you not a Star Wars guy? I know, I mean, like I I'm am not... to an extent, but uh-huh. like I haven't seen the most recent two, and you know I I respect the the day for its. Um, you know, value as a promotional tool in minor league baseball and college baseball. And I did see a cool video from Auburn of um, a TIE fighter and whatever they call the um, enemy fighters. Uh, I certainly will not be no help, but <laughs> <laughs> like going at it over, over the campus. But uh, yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not huge at it. I, um, I haven't noticed as much. I mean, I think we're all kind of, this is just such a unique period of time in so many ways, but I, I think that's been expressed today and I have not seen as much May the 4th stuff out there. And part of that is probably just because people aren't out and about where they're able to kind of do their thing on social media quite as well. So it's probably that to some degree. I am, I'm kind of a, I feel like a rare bird in the Star Wars world. I don't really, I won't say I don't care for them. I, I do like, I like them for, for the fact that they are just inter- entertaining movies. Like I've liked them all as little pieces of entertainment, but I ha- you know, I, I don't really think of them in for anything beyond that. I'm certainly not a star Wars hater. And I feel like people often fall on one side or the other where they, they, they really enjoy the movies and they're kind of interested in the lore and the canon. And then there are people who are just kind of on the other end of the spectrum. Um, I uh, may perhaps be in a relationship with someone who is on the other end of the spectrum in terms of that. Um, but I, I kind of just fall in the middle where I, I like them as pieces of entertainment and really nothing more, nothing less. Yeah. I think that's a fair assessment of where I'm at. Like it's uh, the movies are generally pretty good. They're not a whole lot more than that for me. I'm certainly not going to hate on them. Like I'll watch them, I guess in some cases I won't, uh, but like, they're uh, they're what they are. Like they're, they're, they're cool. I guess kind of that's, that's where yeah. I'm at. Yeah. Good movies. So on that hot take, <laughs> let's get to some hotter ones. Um, you know, like I said that we uh, were having Pete Hughes on the show today to, to talk a little bit about two sports stuff more than any, uh, and, and as well as his, his Kansas state team. Uh, we originally, as you might recall, we're planning to do this a week ago and it was going to, the, the plan was for it to dovetail a little bit with the NFL draft and, um, you know, just how baseball relates to that. And Cole Komet was a, a two sport player for Notre Dame and he got picked in the second round uh, by the bears to, to go play tight end after having 
pitched the last couple of years for Notre Dame in addition to his football duties. And, and so that it, it was all meant to kind of neatly tie in that way. And then the Cape canceled its season. And we made last week's uh, more newsy podcast all about uh, the Cape Cod League and, and pushed Pete Hughes back a week. But what we lose maybe in the timeliness of the NFL draft, like we still very much have a, a very entertaining subject to get into today as we, we talk a little bit about the football aspect and also the, the Wildcats who uh, Joe, I feel like I'm, must have on the podcast, he certainly did offline, but I, I'm sure he did on the podcast as well, was very interested in seeing how they would be this year uh, in terms of what kind of steps forward they could take in year two under Pete Hughes. And of course, we'll never truly know how that was going to play out, but they did seem like they were moving in a, in a solid forward direction. I don't know if they would have gotten to the bubble area that Joe thought they might be able to. Uh, and of course that that's a complete unknowable as we, uh, as we lost the, the better part of the, the season, of course. So we'll leave that as an unknown, but it is uh, the, the development of that program right now. Um, you know, he'll get into the construction, the renovations they've had there, how important those are for the program. And just in terms of, you know, increasing the talent level and getting the Wildcats to a higher level of competitive competitiveness in the Big 12, uh, it does seem like things are moving in the right direction in Manhattan. So we'll get into all of that here uh, with Pete Hughes in a second. but. You know, Joe, I, I just feel like as the, the resident Kansas State like proponent going into 2020, is there anything else you wanted to say to set the stage uh, for, for Pete Hughes? I think it's just one of the things that really stuck out to me about Kansas State coming into this season and why I was pretty bullish on them, I think, in the grand scheme of things. And I think your characterization was about right. I thought if things went really well for this Kansas State team, they might be able to fight their way into being on the periphery of the bubble. Not too dissimilar from the way rival Kansas was last year. Kansas was a team that at no point during the season did you or I really have a serious conversation about them, but you looked up at the end of the year and they'd gone about actually, I think exactly 500 in big 12 play. RPI was kind of in the sixties. If they had really had a nice week in Oklahoma city, they maybe could have gotten there. I, I, I kind of thought Kansas state might've been ticketed for a similar outcome if things had gone really well. And you're right in that we never will know, but it was certainly trending that way on the mound. And there's some caveats, of course, that, I mean, their most impressive weekend was winning three or four against Stanford and going out West to to do that is, is still an impressive thing in a vacuum, but we have to remember that that was a Stanford team that was really off to a slow start and and particularly on the offensive side. And so, you know, perhaps that, um, you know, is a filter we have to run that piece of information through, but it's still an impressive feat nonetheless. And so, it was shaping up to be the type of team that I thought they could be, you know, as, um, as you'll hear coach, you say here in a little bit, I mean, their offense got off to a little bit of a sluggish start and that was giving me pause early on, but they had started to pick it up a little bit. So I, you know, I'm disappointed to not see where this ends up because selfishly, I I just kind of wanted to find out if I was going to be right. I have a, you know, I have an inclination to say that I, that I would have been, um, with the ceiling of, you know, kind of being on the bubble and, and the floor being high enough to where I think this was a team you certainly were not going to want to see on the weekend, the big 12. I mean, that was not going to be a fun weekend with the high end arms that they had. And I'm certainly looking forward to 2021. It's they're, they're really just going to kind of run it back. I mean, they, there are some 
on the mound, maybe some draft risks. There's some guys with some track record on the Cape on the roster. So there are guys who, who, who maybe aren't a part of the 2021 team, but the, for the most part, they are just going to be able to run it back. And I think that makes them dangerous moving forward. And of course, we'll, we'll have plenty of time to talk about that before we, before we get there, but, but certainly disappointed to not be able to see if this team turned out to be what I thought they could be. Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely fair. They do have some guys that I think will be in play in the draft, particularly if we get to a 10 round draft, obviously that's still unknown in a five round draft. I, I don't know how much uh, they would ha- really have to worry about some of that stuff, but we'll uh, we'll probably address that more as we get closer to uh, to the draft in about a month or so. Um, but it's an exciting time in Kansas State and Kansas State baseball, but especially, but I guess kind of overall as as an athletic department, uh, you know things are are moving in a in a good direction, or at least they were. You know we'll see see how everything comes out of, of the current crisis, but things do, do seem like that they have a lot of momentum at that program. The, the, the facility piece of it is very significant. The on-field piece of it is significant as well. And so it, it's now up to the Wildcats to kind of capitalize on that whenever we are able to, uh, to get back on the field. But we'll get into all of that here uh, with Pete Hughes. So let's do that with uh, Kansas State coach, Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we're happy to be joined by Kansas State coach Pete Hughes. Coach, uh, it's been a been a bit of a strange spring, but how are you managing uh, this uh, this unique time in college baseball? You know, like everybody, you're trying to stay engaged in the game, and you know, you, you got to get into a routine, really, or or your days get away from you, and then you know. It, you could really go stir crazy. So, you know, I spent a lot of time on the phone um, more so than any other time that I can remember, you know, it's calling your players uh, once a week and calling your incoming recruits and just trying to keep everybody engaged and keep them in the right frame of mind and, you know, and making sure everyone hasn't lost sight of, you know, the level of commitment it takes to, and the consistent level of commitment it takes to be great at this level. And um, I worry about those things when your guys are away from you for so long and that message that you bring every day, but, and also you know, if, if they're away from you and, and you lose a little touch with them and then there's no facilities, it's certainly a long enough t- time for guys to take some steps back in their development. But we think we've got the right group of guys where that's not going to happen. Now this is year two for you at Kansas State. You uh, you had some nice moments in year one. You know you won a series against TCU, won a series against Texas. Uh, there also were some tough moments, of course, as you're taking over a program. But coming off of that year, what kind of strides did you see coming into to 2020 and, and the brief time that we did get this season? What kind of strides did you see the the team and the players making? Well, you know we had a lot of returners back on a team that. It was just getting adjusted in a different culture and a different message every day. And um, so he had a lot of experience coming back on a, on a, on a productive lineup, you know, positionally. And we thought we had some great additions. We had some kids that, that were really high on it, especially in, in, in the right position, the most important position on the mound. And, and so you looked at the depth we had this year, we, we pitched at a really high level. And that, that was the biggest adjustment from 
you know, you go year one, you, you, you try to get your message out there and you got to change your culture in the weight room and change your culture on how you view things socially and change the culture on how your practices run and then your game approach. And when all that's installed, you just let your team go out and, and play now. And I've done it, you know, four different places, five different places. And it's just uh, that year one is just getting your message and your culture established. And then nothing happens after, after that, unless you get the right guys on the mound, the right guys who play at the, you know, at a high skill level of this league. And, you know, this year we thought we were, we were heading in the right direction, you know, as far as whenever you have a pitching staff, like we have, um, you have a chance to play really well in, and deep into June. Um, and that's the kind of staff that, you know, we truly believe we have here. And then, you know, the other piece of the puzzle there that goes along with strong pitching in this, you know, this isn't rocket science. The guys who can play the best defense and, and pitch the best are, are usually the teams that win more consistently. And the things that we've, that we really set, you know, to fix in recruiting and in our daily approach, and it's always been that way with me, is to put a premium on defense and, and, and recruit the heck out of the best pitches you can get and then do a great job developing those guys. We, we've fielded at a 980 clip um, this year, which, you know, two years ago before before we got here, I think we were last in the Big 12 in, in fielding percentage. And, um, you know, that 980 put us up in the Big 12. 980 is an Omaha number when it comes to fielding percentage. So it's a pretty good combination when you had the pitching staff that we had and the defense that we were playing. Um, and all that comes back, you know, next year. And, you know, with, with, and with what we're bringing in for the class that we have coming in, which is essentially our first recruiting class. So, you know, we couldn't be more excited about where we're at as a program right now this quick. You alluded to that pitching staff, and that was really a part of the game that was appeared to be clicking on all all cylinders. I mean, where did this group kind of compare to other really good groups you've had throughout your career? And you mentioned being at, at several different high-level places previously. Yeah, you know, at Virginia Tech, we were we hosted a regional. Um, you know, Oklahoma certainly recruited and coached a lot of kids that were drafted at a high level, and even some of the guys that are still there, you know, Kate Cavalli and, and that crew was part of my recruiting class. So, you know, you're right. I, I've been around a lot of high-end pitching and, and I, I, I don't hesitate in saying that, that this is, this is the, this year and especially next year is, is the most talented pitching staff that I've ever coached. And that's not slighting anybody. It's just when you have five starters, I've never had that before. And if you looked at my last, year at Oklahoma when we were a two seed, we didn't have the most depth on our pitching staff. I mean, we had a couple injuries during that season where we lost nine out of 10 before we got, you know, Jake Irvin and those guys back. And, um, with the depth we have on the pitching staff here at Kansas State, you know, I, I, we can overcome an injury or, or overcome a kid if he wants to um, sign and think it's time to, to go out in June or, or July whenever the draft's going to go down. I've never had that depth and, and, and at this league and at this level, if you can get a quality start through six innings and then, and then you have a matchup plan from the seventh on and you get, you have a plan every single day with different guys and you have the numbers and the skill level to do that. It's, it's a pretty good and dangerous pitching staff. And that's what we had this year. And, you know, that's, believe me, that's not me over talking. I've been humbled by this game and, you know, 
I'm not doing it from a recruiting standpoint. The numbers don't lie. Um, our numbers are there at the national level this year. All these kids are coming back next year with a couple few additions, which is going to make us as, you know, there's no question. It's the deepest, most talented staff that I've ever coached. You guys really had, you mentioned hitting your stride a little bit. You'd come off of, you know, winning three out of four at Stanford on the road. That's a tough road trip to go all the way out there and get that done. And then, you know, after a couple of midweek games, that's it for the season. I mean, how disappointing was it to, to kind of have it? It's always, that was always going to be disappointing if that happened. But certainly given the way you guys were playing, I mean, that just had to really kind of be a heartbreaking thing for you and your guys. It, it was, you know, we, we knew we were going to pitch and we just didn't start off with the bats, you know, like, like, like we were capable of doing. And, you know, that's, that is baseball in a nutshell. nutshell. So <clears throat> we're just waiting for the bats to come around. You know, we thought that finally happened. And some of our guys that had a lot of success last year were getting more comfortable and being more productive. Um, yeah. So you're right. It, it was disappointing, you know, when, when those bats started to come around and then you, you go on the road and you string, you string together a nice stretch. And like you said, it's a, it's a tough place to go on the other side of the country and play at Stanford is historically a great program and, you know, one of the better coaching staffs in the country. I know that. And so, yeah, we had a lot of momentum going. Our guys were feeling great about our program and, you know, it's, uh, it's stung a little bit. Um, but, you know, it also, it also makes us look forward to and, and motivates us for, you know, the prospect of next year. And when you have everybody say they want to come back and, you know, some seniors that are worthy to, to, to be solid free agent signees say that they want to come back and be a part of it. You know, your program is headed in the right direction when, when those kids, you know, then they're not even going to think about pro ball right now as an option because they want to be a part of what's going to happen here next year. So that makes you feel a little bit better. It lessens the sting, but yeah, there's no question about it. It felt terrible for our guys and, um, and the community, you know, the community is excited about this program and our guys and what they're doing every day. And, um, you know, just as you're about to go on a nice stretch and get in conference and, you know, open the park and league against the new, the new, the new renovations against Baylor and you know, a lot of buzz around our, our program right now. And, and to have that taken away from some of these guys that, especially some of the older guys that haven't experienced that high level of success around here, you know, that, that they were finally going to get a taste of that, but that's who you feel for, but I'm happy they're going to come back and, hopefully we can have some success success next year for these guys. So, you know, they can be a part of that and they deserve to be. You mentioned the renovations there. And I know that's a thing that everyone's been very excited about. Did you know that those were in the works when you were talking about taking the job or, um, you know, how quickly have those come along and, and just how excited was the team when they were able to, to get into the, the new clubhouse and everything uh, this year? Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't, I'm not interested in this job if, if these renovations weren't, weren't on the books, you know, believe me, because you know, look, I, I recruited against Kansas state competed against Kansas state in the region. Um, I knew where they were and it was a program that was at its highest level, you know, one, one game away from Omaha in two thir 2013, but it slipped and slipped rapidly. And I, I really was not interested in Kansas state until I met with the leadership and, Gene Taylor, the AD, Casey Scott's a longtime baseball guy. He's a baseball administrator here. You know, those guys assured me that the money was raised and, you know, it, it, the, the project was already started, phase one. It certainly was. I mean, that, 
believe me, I've interviewed and I took jobs before where there were there was a lot of construction proje projects and enhancements on stadiums and programs that were promised that never delivered. You know, I came here day one and there were there were cranes on our field and you know they they, they were construction workers everywhere and you know that that's commitment right there and and yeah it was a huge part of me coming in just because I knew what a special college community it was and as soon as they got serious and caught up to the rest of the landscape in the Big 12 and in region with their facilities and resources and with the right AD you know Dean Taylor wants to win at baseball so you put 21 million dollars in your baseball facility and that certainly proves you want to win in baseball and um, it was easy for me to become excited about this pro program when I found out and spent time with the quality of people and then they had a mission and being as great and going, you know, having an Omaha mission really when those, they, they share the same goals that I have. And, um, you know, that's, that's just a huge, that's a huge asset when you're going to, when you're looking at jobs, when you'd be on the same page with your boss and they have the same goals and vision as you, but these, these facilities are as, as good as they get at college baseball at the highest level. You know, we can recruit anybody now. There's, there's no recruit that we cannot get involved with. There's no recruit or family that's going to walk into our baseball facility and not know that Kansas State's serious about baseball because that's the first thing that pops out when you walk into this new facility is, wow, they must care about baseball here. They did it right. They didn't chintz it. They didn't cut corners. Um, everything from the clubhouse to the team room to the fueling station to our meeting rooms to our offices is first class Omaha standard and um, it's exciting. It's exciting to be a part of it. And like I said, it doesn't happen if we don't have an administration that's, that's locked in and, and wanting to be great at baseball. One of the other things that we want to talk about today is your unique background. I mean, you're a guy who not only played college baseball and, and now coaches it, but you played college football and have coached uh, football at the college level. And I'm curious, first off, just how that background you have of, of being involved in two sports, not just as a player, but as a coach, has kind of colored you as a, as a college baseball coach. What lessons that maybe you took from the football side are you using in your career as a college baseball coach? You know, back then, you know, I think I was 23 or 24 when I got hired as a full-time um, coach in 1AA at Northeastern University. I was, might have been the youngest full-time guy at the time in the country. And, you know, I, I learned, and uh, as baptism by fire, I got thrown into a, a really, really competitive recruiting market. And to me, back then, football were the guys that were recruiting it the right way, and they were the only ones doing it. And that's, you know, getting to know the high school coach or, you know, really establish a relationship in the recruiting experience with the player and the family. There were no baseball coaches back then doing home visits. And I know that's all we did in football. We're, we're getting into the houses and getting into the hometown, setting up shop there, um, and really making the recruiting part, uh, the major part of recruiting, about the relationship between the coach and the family. And that's what I did. You know, when I, when I got the job at Boston College, we had, we had three scholarships. Everybody had 11.7. And we were the other than Harvard, we were the second most expensive institution in the region, and I got three scholarships. So, you know, people other than the academic side of things better believe they're investing in their relationship with the coach. So I, I home visited everybody I could uh, my first three or four years at Boston College, and you know, we started getting involved with some kids that were, you know, my goal at BC was to, you're either going to stay in New England, and, and if you do, you're going to go to Boston College, and if, you want, if not, then you're going to go south. And I felt if I got there in the recruiting uh, part of the decision that we were going to get some really good players. But 
it didn't happen unless we were going to establish relationships in the household and with the family. So that would be the biggest thing that I got out of football. And now, of course, college baseball's uh, at an all-time high and uh, everyone's doing it right. Everyone's got a full-time recruiting coach. Everyone's in living rooms. And, you know, they're very thorough. And um, it, it's, it's, it's very similar to where football was, you know, when, uh, 20, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when I learned the profession and learned how to recruit. Um, but being very thorough and, and being, you know, nonstop with building relationships, you know, from a game planning standpoint, football coaches, I, I was, I was a GA back in the day when, you know, you're working, you're working 16, 17 hours a day and it's, it's nonstop and um, the film work never ended, you know, but these last two years with what we have available to us in college baseball with, you know, scouting software and um, synergy, that's, I mean, that, that, it was such a f phenomenal software for us to have. It's, but it's, it's really increased our film work time. I feel like I'm a, I'm a young football coach again with the amount of film work going in each week to study your opponent. But you have to because you have that information at your fingertips. You have to take advantage of it. But um, yeah, I, I feel like I'm a, I'm a graduate assistant at Hamilton College, Hamilton College, breaking down film again uh, with the amount of time we're looking at film with the synergy in baseball these days but it's uh it's uh without without football and my background in football as a player you know and and as a coach it, it's definitely it molded my style my approach and and how I go to work every day that's for sure it's my foundation how challenging was it for you as a player to to do both the football and the baseball at, at the high level that you did uh, at Davidson you know Davidson was pretty academic too you know so you you're fighting for your life, even if I didn't play, you know, one sport, you're fighting for your life academically. And um, it just, I tell our guys all the time, it's just, if, if you're a competitor, you get it done, you know, no, no matter what the scenario is. And, um, and if you truly love the sport of baseball and the sport of football, then you're going to do whatever it takes to be able to have those two things in your life, even if it means study extra or stay up later or get up an hour earlier. And, you know, those are the sacrifices you made, but there was, there was no option for me. You know, it's just, I grew up playing two sports and I just couldn't see myself not doing that at the next phase, you know, and at the college level. So that was important to me when I made my decision. I wasn't, I wasn't the greatest football player, but I don't know what I could have done if I didn't have that as part of my annual life, you know, and it, it, it takes a lot of sacrifice, but it's a, uh, it just meant that I wanted to play those two sports that bad. I, w I would have done anything to have done that. And I'm glad I did. You know, it was a great experience and it allowed me to get a, a phenomenal degree and, you know, relationships for a lifetime. I'm curious what you think the differences are between doing it at, at the time you did it versus now if, if a student, student athlete were to come along and try to pull this off today, especially at the FBS, you know, high major level from a football and baseball standpoint, just what you think those differences would be now versus when you were doing it, you know, 30 years ago? You know, the only difference is, is having, having the right guys in place as far as coaching staff, you know, in, in football and, and in baseball. You know, there's got to be a little give and take. And, you know, all of us, we get so locked in in our sport where it's like I have to have my guy 100% of the time and I don't, I don't even have – the NCA doesn't even allow me to have enough hours in a week for us to get him to a certain level where I think we can get him. And then 
I can't imagine giving him to another sport for, you know, this part of the season or, or this part of the day, you know, it's got to take a couple coaches to say, Hey, look, you know, this kid can reach his potential in football and he can reach his potential in baseball. And we can be great at two sports for our school with this one player. And I was fortunate enough to work side by side with, you know, Bob Stoops at Oklahoma where, you know, Cody Thomas, uh, you know, here's Tyler Murray. So you got these two guys that play that important of a position quarterback where those guys meet as the quarterback position meets as much as the coaching staffs do with, with offensive implementation and, um, you know, just new offenses and, and film work and study. They got to know everybody on that side of the ball. But coach Stoops said, if Cody Thomas can help us win baseball games, that's great for our university. You, you, you take Cody as long as much as you need him. I need him for these, these days. Kyla Murray is going to help us win football games and he's going to be a frontline baseball player for you. Whatever it's going to take, get with Lincoln Riley and do with the schedule. And, you know, I remember talking to Lincoln and he's like, well, here's the dates where we need Kyler for spring football. And this was right after, you know, Baker Mayfield was, was about to leave. So Kyler was going to be the guy. So I'm thinking I'm going to get Kyler maybe once one day a week. And uh, Lincoln comes back with, you know, we just need him for three, these three days in the spring. Um, he's only going to miss two baseball games for you. You know, so that that's few and far between. But it, it also proves that it doesn't take that much for a kid to excel in both sports. And and if it means giving them up a practice here or there or, or you know, a scrimmage here or there or a game here and there or a film session here and there, he's still going to reach his potential. And, you know, those are two great examples. It, it really didn't slow, you know, Kyler's. Um, ability to grow in both sports. I mean, they first, first rounder in, in, in both sports, you know, he's a phenomenal athlete. I get it, but you know, he, he had his struggles with me making the adjustment to, you know, the big 12 level of baseball. It's just a matter of time. And you know, those guys were accommodating enough, you know, to, to, to allow him to do that. Same with Cody Tom I mean, Cody Tom is going to be a big leaguer here, you know, big, be a big leaguer for a long time, but he needed the growth and he needed to fail with me that first year to get to the next level and football allowed him to do that, but it doesn't take that much. You know, it's, it should be part of the recruiting process, you know, with a dual sport player, but you know where things are going these days with, with um, amateur athletics and specialization. And it's really hard for those kids to be able to play two sports without, you know, getting tugged from, you know, the, 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 the travel guy that wants you to play in his fall program or, you know, the football coach that wants you to be in a seven and seven in the summertime. It's, it's difficult, but anytime I have a chance to recruit a two-sport athlete um, who's at the same level of talent as a one-sport athlete, 100 out of 100 times in my recruit, my coaching career, I've recruited the two-sport athlete. One of the things that always impressed me about Kyler was just how quickly he was able to pick baseball back up after effectively taking a couple years away from it between the transfer and, and injury. Um, what did you see from him that allowed him to, to do that? Is that just singular athleticism or, or his drive or what, what stood out to you the most about what Kyler Murray can do? Yeah. I mean, I think you would tell you down at that Louisville regional, right. In, in, um, in 17 when yep. we were down there and Kyler was on my team and, and he wasn't in my lineup every day just because first of all, 
it is it is really hard to be successful at this level of college baseball. It is. I do think that I think I think Major League Baseball had an easier decision to cut some of their lower levels of minor league baseball because how good our level of college baseball is. And that's all about development and development for their product down the road. So it's difficult when, when you get Kyla Murray, arguably the greatest athlete to play college athletics. Um, when he has a learning curve in our game, that tells you how hard this game is and what level we play it at, you know, in college baseball. But for him to, to put this sport down for a couple years, really, and come in and, and, and be a first rounder is just, you know, that, that you're not going to see that happen. It's just, it's just crazy athleticism. And you, you know, the sport of baseball, it is, it's a high rep game. As far as your development, it's the guys who can get the most reps that generally are, are your best players, but it really didn't matter with Kyler because he is such a freak of an athlete I mean, and a phenomenal team player and, and person, you know, uh, but what stuck out with him and that old adage that, you know, speed never slumps. I've never, I, I've never seen a kid that fast on a baseball field. You don't see that kind of speed on a baseball field. And you really didn't see it on a football field when, until Kyler was out there, but on a baseball field, it was just phenomenal to watch. And, you know, the only other comparison at the, at the collegiate level, and it was very close, very similar, was um, Trey Turner as far as the speed on a baseball field and, and you know, just the angles and the efficiency in which they ran. It, you, you just don't see that every day on a college baseball field. It's fun to watch. I'm curious if you ever thought perhaps that your future from a coaching perspective might be in football because you, you were a college football coach for at Northeastern for a, a fairly long period of time. And, and I just wonder if, if, if your thought was always to, to be a baseball coach long-term or if maybe you were just kind of waiting and seeing what opportunities arose. You know, it's funny you ask that. I, I was going to be a college football coach from day one and, um, and I was on the fast track, you know, when you get that full-time job in the division one level and you're out recruiting, you're off and running, you know, and, you know, I, I worked on the same staff and I, I Doug, Doug Marone was, uh, you know, the, the head coach of the Jaguars was, was my roommate. Joe Philbin was the head coach of the uh, Dolphins and coordinator with the Packers, now with the Cowboys. Chip Kelly and I used to recruit in, in the same area and, and run around together when he was at UNH. So, you know, I, I, I've been around some phenomenal football coaches and I was, I was, I was on a fast track and um, it just so happens that, you know, uh, Barry Gallup was my boss at Northeastern in football and he was the AD there. And he looked, he goes, you know, our baseball program at Northeastern needs a little help. I know your background. I can pay you $5,000 if, if you can help us out in the spring as well. And I'll accommodate you with spring football and spring recruiting. And you know, I was single at the time and I, I had all the time in the world and I loved baseball, but what it did was it got me out there and um, I started to build a resume in baseball. And then I interviewed at Harvard for their head job. I think I was, I was 27, 26 years old. And it was before it became um, endowed in, in a really good salary position, you know, I, I was young enough to get an interview there and my name got out there, but it was a great experience, but it, it made me think that I could be a head coach at a young, 
a, a lot younger age than I could in football, you know, and, and I wanted to lead my own program and I knew I was going to have a big family. And back then football, you know, football guys and families were jumping around all over the place. I wanted a little consistency. I wanted to run my own program. And in the end of the day, I wanted to work really, really hard and be able to compete 56 times, not just 10 or 11 days out of the year. I could never rationalize all the work I was putting in for football and, 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 and being able to compete only 11 days out of the year. So just the ability and, and the opportunity to recruit, I mean, to, to, to compete 56 times and work hard. And um, it drew me to baseball, but then, you know, I, I, I was lucky enough to get my head first head coaching job at 27 at Trinity university in San Antonio, Texas, phenomenal place. If, uh, if we were still there, we'd be, be more than happy. And, um, two years later, I got a chance to be the head coach of, um, you know, my, my dream school, the school that I grew up you know, in my own backyard and be its first full-time head coach. And I went back there at 30 and Boston college for eight years. And, you know, had five, we had four children who were there to make five total. And, um, just, just, uh, it was a great move, but that's not the track I started on. I was, I was going to be a head football coach at the division one level for the longest time in my head and, and all my goals and aspirations. Um, but it shifted to baseball because of my, my want to have a head coaching job earlier and, and to be, to provide a more consistent um, family life for my family. And, uh, certainly glad we went in this direction. We've we've had a good run at it, and and we're certainly not done. That's really amazing how you know best laid plans and all the rest of that, but just how how things go in life sometimes. Um, I also wanted to ask just how you're occupying your time these days, since we have a lot more of it uh, this spring than you're used to. Are you you mowing the grass more, or doing some honey do lists, or reading streaming tv what, what what's occupying your time more you know um as soon as you have five kids in the mix you you eliminate your lawn duties because you don't have time for that so that happened a long time ago i'm not ready to learn those those duties again so i'm not i'm not cutting the lawn um i i am certainly um taking care of the honeydew list, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's not that extensive. It never has been, but watching, watching a lot of Netflix, Amazon prime, um, reading, uh, working out, you know, cooking, you know, eating, eating together as a family, which, you know, these days when, when your kids, they get a little older and there's more and more activities available for them, and then I get busy with my schedule. It's not conducive to sit down and, and have family dinner. So, you know, we eat dinner every night at seven o'clock and that's, that's, that's something that's new from our routine and, and something that's been really enjoyable. Um, you know, we, we're lucky we have a family that's a big family, but enjoys being around each other and um, makes times like this a lot easier. And we're just trying to take advantage of it from that standpoint and stay positive. But the key, the whole deal is just, establishing a routine and getting into a routine um, and staying right there and, and just staying positive and, and understanding the big picture, you know, but um, as far as me keeping busy on the phone a lot, like I said earlier, I try to do something professionally that, that keeps me um, engaged every day, um, 
try to do something every day, physical fitness standpoint. You know, I have my little checklist and it's not too extensive, but um, really I just like to keep our kids engaged in the program and, and, and reaching out to them and just mowing through some, mowing through some uh, Netflix series that I never would have time to, to watch and, and, and really trying to make it an enjoyable time for everybody. I know a lot of people are in that same boat, so can uh, can definitely uh, relate relate to the just trying to trying to figure it all out, trying to make it as family oriented as possible, and sitting in front of uh, some Netflix. That's uh, I think that's a common uh, common situation these days. Yeah, no doubt. Well, Coach, we really appreciate you taking the time to to join us here today on, on the Baseball America College podcast. Anytime, guys. We appreciate everything you do. You. You're great at promoting our game, and, and um, you know, I know it'll never be underappreciated from this baseball office, so thanks for everything you've done. It's been fun watching you guys grow. Thank you again to Kansas State coach Pete Hughes for joining us here on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, Joe, I thought that was uh, a really insightful interview from a variety of perspectives, um, I guess kind of because we were talking about these two kind of dissimilar pieces with him both the the Kansas State piece and and the uh, two sport athlete piece but from uh let's take the Kansas State piece first I uh I I, his optimism about the the program definitely not unexpected and definitely not unwarranted but the way he's talking about that pitching staff I was a little bit surprised like we we have a doc Joe and I do where we you know have questions that that we both so we aren't doubling up or anything. And when Joe put that question to the doc, I was a little bit like, is he like being overambitious on this pitching staff? Like a little bit? Like, I don't know. Pete Hughes has had some pretty good pitching staffs over his career at Oklahoma and, and Virginia Tech and, and elsewhere. Like, is this one really going to going to stack up? And well, he, he said it did. Yeah, I was even a little bit surprised that he was willing to go there because for those who know Pete Hughes, he's also not really one to do that kind of thing, unless it's warranted. He's not someone who is going to say things to say things or, or, or pump stuff up just for the sake of pumping stuff up. Um, that's really not him. So, you know, we, we have to, I think, take him at, at his word there and the numbers bear that out. He meant, you know, he says, go look at the numbers and uh, sure enough, ERA just over two. And they even had some guys who I think were going to be key pieces for the pitching staff that weren't really at their best. Eric Torres, who was a great reliever for them last year and went and pitched on the Cape last summer you know, had had some early struggles. And you have to imagine a guy like him figures it out a little bit. So I think there was even room for some anecdotal improvement. They, they probably weren't going to have an ERA just about two all season. That would have been pretty incredible. But at least anecdotally, there were there were places where there was a little bit of, of room for improvement. I think um, my big picture takeaway here, you mentioned some of the other places he's been. And, and Oklahoma is a little bit different because it is such a such an established big name brand in college baseball. I mean, it's, it's a program with a national title and there are only so many of those, but I, I go back to his time at Virginia tech and, and you look at the two programs and without really getting into the weeds of, of doing like an, uh, you know, an A and B column comparison, Virginia tech is a program that at least on the, on the very surface level, not all that different from Kansas state in terms of, you know, being in a league with teams that have a lot of geographic and, and talent advantages in terms of, uh, you know. And especially Virginia Tech at that time. Like now you might think of it like, oh, they just had renovations. The stadium's really nice. Like he was there before all of that. Right. A, g- a good point to make. Yeah. And, and But he took Virginia Tech from being that. I mean, a true also ran within the ACC. And in his last year, they hosted a regional. 
And I'm, you know, obviously we, we can't project forward because we're talking in the future of Kansas State. When they're ready to do that, we're probably talking a few years in the, in the future here. But Kansas State and Virginia Tech, not that different a job in terms of those surface level things. And one of the reasons I was kind of interested to see what this 2020 team did is even as far back as last year with the way they played at the end of the year, the way they kind of pushed to get into the Big 12 tournament, which was a big deal for a program that had been stuck at the bottom of the Big 12 historically over those previous four years. You know, it was a big deal for them to get there. I could kind of start to see those gears turning for a similar type of, of rebuild because the, the way the team was constructed was kind of similar to what he was doing at Virginia Tech, and we saw how it worked there. So, you know, it remains to be seen if he's able to get, you know, have the peak that, that he had at Virginia Tech, but, but certainly it's moving and trending in that right direction. And I just think there's room for him to pull off something similar at Kansas State. And like he's talking about, the facility improvement is a big part of that. If you haven't seen photos, like I would definitely say go look those up. Like it is it is legitimately uh, very impressive what they've been able to, to put together put together there. And like I think that's very important for them because you know, you're in Manhattan, Kansas, and you know, there's some there's some talent around you for sure, but you're also not in a huge hotspot. And, you know, you're going to have to compete with programs that are in pretty significant hotspots, you know, the, half the leagues in Texas, right? So you got to find something that you can recruit to, that, that you can sell kids on. And, you know, time will tell, but maybe this could be something like what they did at West Virginia, because I think that their new stadium has been, you know, very significant to, to the rise of that program under Randy Maisie. Uh, it gives, you know, Randy's a really good coach and, and he's proven that time and again, but you know, it, it helps to have something to recruit to. And I, I, I think that, you know, that's probably got to be the ultimate goal of, of Kansas State is getting to where West Virginia has been, where, you know, you can compete at the high level in the league maybe not annually, maybe you're not going to be Texas or Texas Tech or Oklahoma State or, or whatever, you know, that's, that's fine. But be an annual team with regional aspirations that can pop up and push the teams at the top uh, and, and host a regional, maybe. I, you know, that, that seems to be where Kansas State's development lies. And that, maybe that's a couple steps ahead. Maybe you just have to you know, still work towards that. But I, I think that that's a, a good spot to be aiming for right now that, you know, that's, that's kind of the next stage of evolution of the Kansas State program and, and getting the, the facilities in a position to, to be there, I, I think is a, a pretty significant one for them. Yeah, I think one of the other things is for, for programs like that, I mean, it's big to be able to take advantage of windows of windows of time and windows of opportunity where others in the league might not be in a position to push you down in, in a certain way. And I think the 2013 Kansas state team, you know, which is uh, obviously that the standard bearer for, for greatness in the Kansas state program. Um, the proof is in the pudding there that you can do something like that at Kansas state. And they were able to do it at a time where, you know, in, you know, Texas had started to be a little more inconsistent. They were a couple of years away from being able to get back to Omaha. And, you know, uh, TCU uh, was yet, had yet to go on its run when they went to Omaha four years in a row. And so it was a time, you know, Steve Rodriguez hadn't come along at, 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 at Baylor yet. And they 
you know, they, so there were opportunities for Kansas State to kind of fill that void a little bit. And they did so in a big way in 2013. And so I think that's part of what this is all about is when uh, this is kind of the point you're making when Texas Tech and Texas and TCU, Baylor, what have you, is really, really humming along uh, to say nothing of the other programs in the, in the conference, it's going to be hard for Kansas State year to year to really have the horses to be able to compete with them at the top of the league. But they could be in a position where, you know, they have a two or three year window where they can compete pretty consistently. And if two or three of those teams that we traditionally look at to be near the top of the conference, for whatever reason, just aren't in position to do so, they're able to capitalize. And when you're in the Big 12, even in years when the competition is a little bit down in the Big 12, you're still going to have good RPI wins. You're still going to be in a position where if you win enough games in that league and you, you finish in the top, you know, a couple of spots in the league, you're going to be in a position to host even in years when the league is a little bit down. And that's the opportunity that's provided in the Big 12. And so I think that's kind of what they are building towards is let's be in a position where when we have our best years, if everyone at the top of the league is not on their game, we have the ability to fill in that vacuum a little bit. Absolutely. I, I think that's, that's very fair. And it, it's something that's been done before. Uh, like you said, the, the 2013 team is kind of the standard bearer in, in program history and rightfully so for all that they accomplished. And uh, it wasn't that long ago. It, it can be done again. And it's just kind of a matter of, of building it up to that point that, that the, the pieces are there. The league is there. The league is really good. That is, can be a bad thing. Certainly it, it makes your life a little bit harder but it it also works to your advantage and you just have to have to work it the right way and what you've seen from those teams that that have done this before in k-state history or what a team like west virginia is doing now uh, or honestly even the rise of texas tech which um you know wasn't ever necessarily an also ran but also certainly wasn't what it has become, uh, you know, just goes to show that there, there is room for growth, room for improvement there. And, and that if, if everything is built the right way, then you can get it, you can really get it rolling. And, and Pete, you certainly understands how to build programs at places that are in, um, you know, a little more challenged than their league, uh, league mates. So I mean, that's what he's Texas, looking to do here. Sorry. I, the, uh, the Texas tech point is a good one. Uh, that, that's a really good point because I think I had maybe even discounted that a little bit as we were talking about this because Texas Tech is in Texas, but not in the same way that TCU and Texas are. I mean, they're, they're, they're in Lubbock. They're it's a four-hour drive from Dallas. Right. And so they are, you know, they are a little more remote. Um, they, didn't have, they didn't have the history, some of these other programs. Now, they, I mean, they had more history than, say, TCU just in terms of they'd been in major conferences for a long, long time and kind of had these established rivalries, you know, TCU had had more high end success earlier than Texas tech in, in terms of getting Domaha, but you know, Texas tech was a place where they had had some success and they'd had some, you know, late nineties in particular were boom times for Texas tech baseball, but they hadn't quite gotten over the hump and all it, I say all it really took, like it was just like flipping a light switch, but it's oversimplifying it, but Tim Tadlock gets there and suddenly they, they figured out. I mean, maybe the 14 CWS trip where they, they get to host and they take on College of Charleston and win a pair of one to nothing games. You know, maybe that's a little bit fluky in that way, that one result. But they had to win enough to get in that position, and they did. And so that, that's actually a really good example. 
now again, being in Texas, they don't have to worry about some of the weather stuff. For example, they can play home games in February and play a bunch more home games and, and what have you. But Texas Tech is not so different from Kansas State just in terms of not a place that's traditionally, um, you know, had facilities for one. I mean, Texas Tech is obviously there now, but, but also just they're not in one of those hotbeds, those traditional hotbeds. They're not far from them, but they're not in those. So it's really not that much different. There's probably not as much daylight between those two situations as, as I was at least initially thinking. Now, now, of course, there is a lot of daylight between the two situations just because of what Tech has been able to continue to do. Um, but all it takes is a really good hire and the commitment. And it sounds like the commitment piece is certainly there. I mean, Coach Hughes said it with, in his own words. And, and given what, what Pete Hughes has accomplished already at Kansas State, it looks like the hire piece at the very least has been a good one and has the moving in the right direction. So uh, we'll have to see. I mean, maybe the ceiling is, is higher than we're giving credit for. Absolutely. We'll, we'll just have to see where it goes. And um, it, it's just a matter of, of how much, how much time can you, you get to, to build the program and your vision and how quickly does it all come together? And uh, you know, we'll, we'll see, but you know, college baseball is littered with, programs at places that you might not expect them to be uh, where, where they wind up be, becoming powerhouses. Um, you know, Oregon State's probably the gold standard of that. You know, what happened in Corvallis under Pat Casey really was not supposed to happen. Um, and yet here they are as a premier program in the sport. So, I mean, it, it gives a lot of hope when stuff like that can happen and has happened in, in very recent history. You know, I'm not talking about just a Fullerton. Um, you know, which is just a mid-major doing it in a place where they have some significant player advantages. We're talking about, um, you know, a school in the Pacific Northwest doing it. And, and so if, if it can happen there, you know, really it can happen anywhere. And it's just a matter of, uh, you know, timing and getting getting things right. So we'll see where, where Kansas State goes from here. And I guess you heard it here first. Kansas State is the next Oregon State. Um, I'm not saying that. That's exactly <laughs> what I'm hearing. um so with that let's uh let's move it over to the the football component of this and you know joe and i talked about this a little bit uh kind of beforehand and stuff but like we knew that that pete's had this very interesting backstory where in which he starts as a a football coach and uh who's also doing some baseball stuff and then he'd been a two-sport player but i did not realize that uh he was roommates with doug marone um you know that he'd been in recruiting battles with chip kelly uh you know when you think about where those guys have gone since those days like that's it's pretty incredible just to think about like them all being in this one little place and now pete hughes is off your off running baseball programs and and they are where they are so it's uh it's it's very interesting how how life works out, but also just kind of interesting how you know you go from thinking your whole life or a long time that you're going to be a football coach to you know chasing a, a, a different dream and being very very good at that as well. You know the the transition to baseball has has been a very positive or I shouldn't say positive I guess, but it, it, it has gone very well uh, for Pete Hughes over the course of his career. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you in that I, I did not expect when, when I asked, you know, is there, was there ever a, a scenario where you're a, a lifetime college football coach instead of a college baseball coach? 
you know, you try to keep an open mind when you ask questions, something like that, but you, sometimes you kind of feel like the answers are, you, you expect what's coming. And, and I kind of expected that, you know, he, he talks about, you know, the, the love that he had for football and the passion that he had for football, but ultimately like his love was with baseball or what have you. And that wasn't really it at all. I mean, he, he admits to like, you know, I was going to be a college football coach and, um, and, and, and you really think about it. And he talks about it. I was on the fast track and I was right on the cusp and, and it's, it's, it's hard to disagree. I mean, we're not talking and not to disparage a lower level, but we're not talking that he did both for five or six years at a, at a D2 or a D3 school. I mean, Northeastern at the, what they now call the FCS level. I mean, that's, that's one step away from really being in the big time in terms of college football. It's not hard to imagine, you know, we look in an alternate universe, we look up now and, and P Hughes is, you know, a coordinator at a, at an FBS program or a power five program or a head coach. I mean, that's, that seems like that alternate timeline is not that far off from reality given, given where he was and, and the, some of the connections that he had. And, um, you know, certainly it's kind of one of those things where, you know, certainly what he's been able to accomplish as a coach in the baseball field suggests that, you know, he would have figured it out on the football side as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's incredible just how, how this stuff works, but it, it's also very interesting to hear him talk about being a two sport athlete at a and especially doing so at a a school as academic as Davidson can be but also just that he it seemed like for him I mean obviously you need the athleticism to be able to do it but it seemed like it was almost more of just a flat-out mindset that you have to you just have to be able to put in the work and if you are a if you are willing to do that then there's no real reason why you couldn't be successful doing both and um you know, so often right now we hear coaches talk about specialization. You're not going to hear that from college coaches, really. They want almost unanimously, they, they want their uh, the, the players they're recruiting to you know, have experienced uh, playing multiple sports to, you know, hone their, their athletic skills in different ways and just to guard against burnout and, um, you know, learn different things. You, you learn toughness on a football field or you learn, um, you know, it, it hones your, your mental ability to, you know, have to go shoot free throws where everyone's, uh, you know, staring at you with the, the game on, on the line at the end. Uh, you know, these different situations can, can really help develop baseball players. And you hear that time and time again from coaches. Um, but, you know, that to have that experience and, and to have his experience coaching two sport guys, um, you know, clearly he wants that and, and is looking for guys to, uh, to continue doing that if that's what they want to be doing. You know, it's funny, you, you, you hear coaches talk about how they, they really want to actively recruit those multi-sport athletes to their program. And then, then he talks about one of the biggest keys for two sport athletes at the college level is having coaches that are kind of willing to do that push and pull instead of trying to monopolize a player's time. And it's, it's just funny how, you know, clearly Pete Hughes has that perspective and there are some other coaches in college baseball. This is not to characterize them all the same, but there are clearly coaches in college baseball and college football that value that type of experience. If the player is good enough to pull it off, there've been a lot of high profile examples, but, but it is kind of funny how they, they all kind of want that. But there are a lot of examples of players getting to college and wanting to do two sports and it just never, just never really comes to fruition. And some of that is probably the player realizing, realizing that, uh, you know, it's not quite for them or, you know, just being so much better one versus the other just makes sense to kind of focus energies that way. But, 
but it, it is kind of funny to hear him say that because you just know there are a lot of examples where, where coaches talk about how much they enjoy that and in recruits and the minute they get to campus um, you know suddenly it's all about that one sport and I get that it's little apples and oranges that the commitment it takes to do so at the college level especially at the FBS and uh, football level and division one baseball level is obviously on the, another level altogether um, but you, you just think you know if there, there would be a lot to be gained if you're an athlete who can pull off both sports. There, there also would be something to gain from continuing to do that in college. And it's, it's clear that, that Pete Hughes feels that way. And we heard the story about Bob Stoops feeling similarly. There's a kind of a holistic view on this where, you know, it means a lot to the university to have somebody as a high profile athlete do both sports. And of course, that's easy to say, I guess, if you have Kyler Murray, uh, not everyone is Kyler Murray clearly. Um, but there are a lot of coaches that do take that viewpoint, but probably just as many that aren't really so sure that they want to commit to allowing a kid to do that. Yeah. The, uh, when, when you talk to, I, I've talked with multiple baseball coaches about this. And if you look at Paul Maneri over the course of his career, he's probably one of the, uh, he's, he's probably had some of the most prominent two sport examples. If you think about, you know, a Chad Jones or a, a Jared Mitchell or go back to some of the guys he had at Notre Dame and, um, you know, he has one right now in, in Maurice Hampton. Uh, it's, it's not uncommon uh, at all. So he has told me that the most important thing, if you're trying to get a two-sport player, is the football coach has to be on board. And nothing, nothing you can do will work if the football coach isn't interested. And he said, he told me this a few years ago, and, you know, he used the example at Notre Dame, you know, he, I, I suppose I could pull up the story right now. Uh, remember exactly which Notre Dame football coaches he was talking about, but it would, ch- it changed while he was at Notre Dame, just because the football coaches changed that one coach didn't want that to happen, that they weren't really on board with football players also playing baseball. And another coach, either his predecessor or his successor was totally willing to do that. And, you know, so that they were able then to tap back into two sport players. And if you don't have that buy-in from the football coach, it doesn't work because in college sports, you know, the, the rules are written so that if you are on a football scholarship, uh, you're, or if you are, if you're on an athletic scholarship and you're playing football, you have to be on a football scholarship. You have to be counting towards their 85 scholarships. And that rule was written to prevent like Bear Bryant from stashing Alabama football players on scholar on track scholarships and therefore, uh, you know, giving him access to more players. But so it's there for a football purpose, but what it does do kind of is it means that it makes being a two sport player a little harder because the, if you're on a football scholarship, it's going to be a full scholarship. And then they feel like, well, you're, you're more our responsibility now because we're the, it's counting against our scholarship limit, not yours. So we have to, you know, be more involved in this. That, that is the mindset of some football coaches. Now other football coaches are obviously more willing to be accommodating. You heard him talk about what Lincoln Riley did for Kyler Murray. and, And we saw just how much baseball Kyler was able to play and, you know, it certainly seems like this spring, you know, we'll never know, but um, I guess for certain we won't know this year. Maybe we'll find out more down the line. But at Ole Miss, it certainly seemed like Jerry Neely and John Rice Plumley were going to be around the baseball team pretty much all the time. 
And, you know, if the player really wants that, like he just has to find a football coach that's like mostly on board. And then if you're really good, they kind of have to go all the way on board with you or else they risk you leaving. Um, But the football coach is a huge, huge part of this. The baseball coach matters too, though, because obviously you have to be willing to split the, to, to not have the kid in the fall, to, to split his time, to work with him on, on all of this. And you have some baseball coaches who barely even really want two-way players that they, they feel like that that's too hard to pull off. Uh, you have some coaches that really go all the way in on two-way players, but there are some programs that it's not by accident they don't have many two-way guys. They probably have guys capable of doing both on their roster. It's just that their philosophy is that if you're not going to be or, or that if you are elite at the one thing, they don't really want to take away any of that by, by adding something else to your plate. And so then you can imagine that if that, that mindset applied to two sport athletes is like increased by a lot, because now you're missing like all kinds of practice and stuff and, and you're splitting your time and you're playing this other sport that uh, frankly is, it makes you a little more injury prone probably. So there's a lot that goes into this. And a lot of it just comes from the kid too. You know, you you can hear a lot about players that want to play both, but then when they realize just what it's going to take, um, they, they kind of back off of that a little, off of that a little bit. And it's really interesting. It makes it really hard to do. It makes what Cole Komet and John Rice Plumley and Maurice Hampton and Jerry Neely and all the other guys that are out there playing two sports, um, please don't at me. I know who they are. Um, that, that they, uh, w- what they're doing right now, uh, it, it reminds you just how hard it is to be as good as they are at two different sports. To say nothing of what Kyler did, uh, you know, and getting picked in the first round in two different sports, something that has, of course, never happened before. Yeah, you, you mentioned the, the, the level of commitment, and that's, I mean, that's what really stands out about it to me is that it, it's really hard, almost hard to fathom. You know, I remember when I was in college and thinking that, that I was really busy and in hindsight, it's because I was just really bad at time management at that point in my life. But I mean, y- you have to imagine it, it actually is just a crazy busy time for these guys that would be trying to juggle both. I mean, it's enough to be doing one, I, you know, I can't imagine the workload of a, a starting quarterback at an FBS level program you know, because it's the practice time on top of, you know, a lot of times they're doing a lot of, you know, just kind of individual work with receivers or, you know, guys like, you know, just just stuff on their own, not to mention the, the working out piece, the playbook piece, the school, obviously. And then, you know, to say nothing of when you're a division one athlete, eating is like just a big part of your routine, like whether it's losing weight, gaining weight, you know, all of that stuff, it, you know, so that's the piece. It's hard. It's just hard for me to fathom. And so I think that is kind of a differentiator. And, you know, he, he, he's mentioned, it's just kind of a mindset thing. I think a lot of ways it is, if you've just decided you want to do that and you realize what that means, I think you, you, you know, are more inclined to be able to do it. I think there are a lot of people that probably just aren't willing to go there. And I think that probably does as much culling as anything else in terms of the guys who are able to do it and, and not, yeah, I think that's 100% right. I mean, Coach was talking about Cody Thomas. 
Cody Thomas did did play both at Oklahoma, and I think there are times in his career where he was actually playing both. But he also, at one point, uh, quit baseball to focus on football and then quit football to go back to baseball. And I, I don't, I'm not trying to disparage what Cody Thomas did in any way. His athletic feats are very incredible and, and greater than most, you know, even college athletes. But that just shows how hard it is that he, you know, twice in his college career felt like I can't be doing both of these things. I want to focus on one thing or another. And, you know, he's so good at the both and, and such a good athlete that he's able to put the switch back and forth a couple of times. But he, uh, he did at, at various times, like want to focus on one thing or the other. And uh, ultimately it's going to pay off in baseball. It certainly looks like that he's going to get to the, the big leagues and, and be a very successful baseball player. He's got incredible power, uh, but it, it's, uh, it's not easy to do what these guys are doing. So we saw in the NFL draft Cole Komet go in, in the second round. We had some other players with, with some baseball ties. He was kind of the only uh, true two-sport guy in, in the NFL draft actively. Uh, but if you're, if you're looking for more down the line, we'll, uh, we'll continue to, to monitor who the two-sport guys are uh, in, in college baseball and, and football, but if you're looking uh, for the next one like that, uh, you might have to wait a year. I, I don't think next year's NFL draft is, is going to be producing us a, uh, a baseball player like the last couple did. So it's kind of a, a unique moment in time right now. Justin Fields, who is Ohio State's quarterback and will probably be in the mix to be the first overall pick in the 2021 NFL draft. He is not playing baseball at Ohio State, but he was a, a pretty talented um, high school player uh, that that's probably your your biggest nfl tie next year unless i'm totally blanking on somebody which i suppose is possible uh and we'll, we'll look forward to me uh writing way more about that later but the uh without cole commit um you know with him moving on this year we're uh we got to wait a couple of years to get uh you know Ely and hampton back to uh back to draft eligible age both in in baseball and football um so with that football talk side, let's move into our latest controversial top 25. Again, Joe and I are ranking 25 things every Monday until we have the, the final preseason top 25 available for you next spring. Uh, so this week, we decided that we were going to rank uh, uniforms. Very simple task, uh, very easy, objective, straightforward. Uh, I feel 100% that we got this right. Uh, Joe, our, the, the uniform ranking, I mean, that, that's, that's probably as least controversial as you can get with the top 25, right? Yeah, I mean, it's funny that it's the, probably the least consequential thing we will rank this offseason, <laughs> although I wouldn't put it past us. I shouldn't say that, because who I knows? Say that. Yeah, who knows where we're going to be in September or what have you. Um, yeah, so it, it is a relatively frivolous thing. Uh, which is not to say it's not interesting. And, yeah, and, I don't think you've seen the recent ideas that I put in that Google Doc. <laughs> uh, oh, I have not. I forward, that'll be a fun little Easter egg for me. Um, but yeah, so it, it's one of the more frivolous things we've done. And again, it's not that it's not interesting and there's value. And it's, um, you know, we want to bring content to our readers that they're interested in reading. And clearly they are interested in reading this, which is, I say all that to say, 
you know, as frivolous as it is, the opinions on this are flaming hot. And I think that's part of why they are is because I think there's really no understanding that there's really no stakes here. You know, this is all kind of in the eye of the holder and ultimately there's no trophy given out for best uniforms. Although I guess we could have shipped something like a plaque or something to LSU or what have you. Um, but there's no like, there's no trophy for this. There's nothing really to be, to be gained from this. I think that's why people feel safe to have really hot takes about this. So people are, people are really, um, really enjoying it. We'll put it that way. There's, we, we've heard from certain fan bases that, uh, think it egregious that their teams are left off, but that was always going to be the case. You know, we could have, you know, we could have put really any 25 teams on this list and there was always going to be somebody upset that they were, that they were left off. And that's kind of the beauty of it. These, these types of things. I, I mused a little bit in the introduction, which I, I can't imagine too many people on this top 25 in particular read the introduction to this thing. They just kind of wanted to scroll past and see, you know, who we, who we ranked where, but I kind of, in the introduction of this post, I kind of, used a little bit on why it is that baseball uniforms in general, baseball and uniforms in particular tend to be kind of right for debate and people want to talk about them. And maybe I'm just biased because I'm more tuned into the baseball debate. That's, there's probably something to that, but I also think there's something to the fact that it's, you know, the national pastime, whatever you think that means these days that there kind of is this traditionalist versus non-traditionalist tension as there always is. It's also just that you spend more time staring at baseball players because baseball, the pace at which it moves, uh, there's ample time to just stare at players who are just standing. So you really can't observe the uniform more so than you can basketball where the players are constantly moving and hockey where they're constantly moving and football kind of in between the two. But so there's a lot of stuff going on there, but, but I, I do think it does make baseball uniforms in particular an interesting topic for debate because everyone seems to have strong opinions on it. And we, we tended to lean in our list here, we tended to lean towards more classic looks, which is not to say we don't have some, some newer, fresher looks smattered uh, throughout, but I think we leaned more with the with more iconic looks. And, and that was just kind of a philosophical choice we made early in this process that we, you know, we didn't want to have it be a, like a fully formed ranking and accounting of, of all the uniforms that are out there. But we did take into account, program history you know the history of the players who have worn the uniform you know if you've been wearing the same jersey top for 40 years that's going to give you a leg up on something that's only been out a few years even if the thing that's only been out for a few years is objectively great you know um you know a great example is Ole Miss the powder blue everybody loves that uniform but you know Oklahoma State and LSU they have some history with those jersey tops and that's part of what put them ahead of the Ole Miss powder blues even though we can all agree those are those are outstanding so a lot actually more went into these than I think people probably assume it's probably, it, I mean, that's true of literally any ranking, but that, I mean, that's a good point. <laughs> that's a good point. But I, you know, I, I'm just kind of speaking for myself where I just kind of thought even for myself, I, I, yeah, I, I think I, Joe, when we started this and I was like, all right, so we need to like hammer this out last, like late last week. I think Joe was like, Oh, so like, that's going to take us like 10 minutes. Right. And I was like, no dude, like we're about to get on the phone for like an hour at least. <laughs> Yeah, I just, uh, and part of it is, 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 you know, my personal, um, I, I do enjoy like a good uniform. My, my tastes are, are very different than Teddy's in a lot of ways. And so I, I do like some stuff that most people would consider hmm, ugly. We'll put it that way. But I think part of it too is that uniforms are just not something I personally get fired up about. Like I have hot takes about like stuff I like, but you know, eh, I'm not, 
not really much of an arguer when it comes to uniforms. But where I did find the exercise interesting was the philosophical debates about classic versus something newer, you know, uh, the, the, how do you rank the white uniforms? Cause there's a lot of just plain white uniforms with just letters on the front, which, I mean, that's a hard thing to really kind of parse, you know, when, when you start to look at, you know, Clemson, for example, just a white uniform, Tulane, just a white uniform, you know, Arizona state, ultimately a white uniform, Michigan is cream, I guess, Texas. And how do you kind of parse those? And that was kind of the hardest part of this for me is trying to figure out what's, what the differences are there. And the thing about these rankings that also makes them hard is it can be any number of things, you know, it can be that, well, there's a certain lore about this uniform, you know, LSU is a great example of that, uh, you know, versus, well, this is, um, you know, this is, they've kind of gone back and forth with a different looks. So this white one doesn't have kind of that same history, you know, there's a lot of little things like that that end up making the difference here. And that's not really something I anticipated going into this exercise. Yeah, I mean, uh, so number one is LSU, number two is is uh, Oklahoma State, and then three is Ole Miss, and you can check out the rest of it over at BaseballAmerica.com. And the, the Ole Miss Powder Blues, like Joe touched on, were a very difficult uniform to handle. And honestly, if you'd asked me before last Friday when we did this research, how long Ole Miss had been wearing those uniforms, I would have said like, I don't know, like 30 years, 25 years. And the answer is only five years. And that really kind of hurt them in this, that they're so new and they aren't related to anything. Like they look like a throwback, but they're not a throwback. They are like throwing back to a time like that Ole Miss had powder blue in their football uniforms, which they do now again. But that's what they're referencing. They're not referencing anything in, in uh, Ole Miss baseball history. And you can sit around and, and tell me that that shouldn't have played into it. Uh, but it did for us that what LSU's gold uniforms have meant, like what the origin story is, what they mean now. Uh, I can't divorce that from what they are. And, you know, Oklahoma State has been wearing those creamsicle uniforms since the 80s, at least. And they have not really materially changed. And so that's, that it's reflected there, w- w- what's going on there. And, um, you know, if you look at the the Mississippi State tops that, that rank fourth, you know, they've, um, around Starkville, those get referred to as the Maroon 85s because that's like the jersey that's associated with the 85 team. That's what they're referencing. That's, what, that's what's going on there. And, you know, so all of that, I feel like that, that kind of history, that really matters. And if you start looking at, you know, I, Joe was mentioning how, you know, I don't, maybe other sports don't don't have similar uniform debates well the ones that do like football definitely does college football certainly um a lot of people definitely want to talk about whatever oregon's wearing or um is penn state ever going to change anything or why did ohio state tweak that um a lot of that is just related to history and that's just where college uniforms are and baseball isn't as beholden to that so that is because people don't remember what teams were wearing in the 60s (laughs) um which is probably a good thing but you know 
in the in in the college sports space, the the tradition, the history, that's all a huge part of this. And so for me, the fact that Warren Morris hit the walk-off home run that everyone associates with college baseball wearing that LSU gold jersey, like that's part of why that's number one. You know, the fact that Robin Ventura and every other great Oklahoma State player throughout history really has worn that orange cream school jersey, like that's that's huge for me. And the fact that Ole Miss's jersey is a little newer, uh, yes, it's a it's an amazing uniform. Yes, it's been trend setting in college baseball. Just go look at how many programs have added powder blue to their repertoire that have no business having powder blue uniforms. Um, there are a lot of them uh, that. Ole Miss is a part of that. And you know, so I, I think that's significant, but I also do think it's significant that it's a, at this point, five-year-old uniform. And, you know, some of that is, is reflected here throughout the list. And I think that uniform definitely has us putting it where we put it. Like if anything, people are complaining, it's not high enough. Uh, one of the other new uniforms on this list uh, that we rank pretty high is Notre Dame's Navy blue uniform which I really like because of the, you know, it's, they, they have the, this gold detailing on there that is meant to look uh, very Gaelic and obviously fits with Notre Dame. Uh, they also wear it with a navy blue pant, which isn't great, but I was trying to focus more on the uniform than on the combination. But in, in the case of the, the color uniforms, we're also wearing the same color pants. It's kind of impossible to escape that, but I just think the the Notre Dame look is really fresh. Uh, I think it's very forward looking, whereas a lot of these other uniforms, even if they're newer, are throwing back to something. That's not what's happening at Notre Dame. It's just a totally new look. Uh, people have not liked that so much. So I, I, I do think that in general, people are looking for these traditional uniforms, even if they're going around and complaining uh, that you know Ole Miss isn't ranked higher or whatever. I think part of the appeal is that it, it, like even though it's not a true throwback, they're throwing back to a time when the Cardinals and the Braves and plenty of other National League teams, the Phillies, um, almost exclusively National League, was wearing those kinds of uniforms in the 70s and 80s. And they, they're clearly referencing that, even if they didn't wear them, making them kind of a faux back. But I, I think that that's maybe why those have resonated in a way that some other new bold uniforms like Notre Dame's navy blues or their grays or Indiana's all reds, maybe those haven't received the same kind of critical acclaim. Also interesting just to kind of see as we were doing this, you kind of incidentally get a little bit of a quick lesson in uniform history. And a few things were interesting to me. One is, you know, a program kind of realizing like, hey, we've got a great look on our hands. Let's you know, let's circle back on it. Oklahoma State is an example where they started to kind of get away from that classic bat, you know, bat on the jersey look. You know, you can go back if you like Google, you know, when Andrew Haney was at Oklahoma State, they were trying to do some different stuff. And even one of the more famous pictures of now their their head coach, Josh Holiday in an Oklahoma State uniform is, is wearing one that's a little bit different. And now they've gone back, you know, full bore back into their classic look uh, where it's, they've got some, some other combinations, but they just primarily either, you know, wear the white, black, or orange uh, jersey top with the, with the bat on it. And so, they, you know, it's kind of interesting. They, you know, kind of realized what they had and went back to it. The other thing is you can certainly see some trends emerge. And, you know, one of them is powder blue uniforms. There are plenty of examples out there of, of schools doing a, doing a powder blue, not just in baseball. 
and Ole Miss is kind of really the one that's hit on something that kind of stands, uh, you know, stands up and, and will probably continue to be a part of their uniform set for, you know, forever, however we want to define that. The other one is that is kind of that throwback movement. And I think Arkansas is a great example of one that really does a good job of, of it, it clearly being, you know, an homage to throwback uniforms, but it also being something that, that seems pretty timeless and um, will be something that, that sticks with them. Cause so many of these throwbacks are either too far into the novelty uh, realm where they're, they're almost uh, not, I don't want to say a joke, but they're almost kind of like, wow, look how, how kind of goofy these look. Can you imagine trying to play in these day after day or they're, you know, just kind of a clear nostalgia play um, you know, Arkansas kind of threaded that needle well, I thought, uh, with a cream color, which that's another trend is, you know, the cream color jerseys as opposed to just white. So there are, you kind of observe some trends there that, that, and I think what sets the schools apart that we ranked are the ones that have, that have acknowledged those trends and done them well, as opposed to just doing them for the sake of doing them. And I think you see a lot of that where you see a uniform trend catch, and then two or three years later, there are a lot of schools doing them just to doing them, I think, of uh, the camo jerseys, you know, uh, for for a long time were, were kind of a thing. And there were a couple instances of, of teams doing a pretty good job of them. To the extent that you like camo jerseys, it's not really my taste. But, you know, there there were ones that were, I thought, were done objectively well. And then everybody had a camo jersey. And now it feels like we're, we're getting a little bit away from camo jerseys. And everyone has an all-black jersey. or Not everyone, you know what I mean. But, um, but the ones that kind of elevate to this level where we put them on this list are the ones that did something while it was a trend and have jerseys that will probably outlive the trend moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I do quickly just want to acknowledge here that just because you're an elite program doesn't mean you have elite jerseys. So notably not missing from this list are Louisville, Vanderbilt, Oregon state, UCLA. Um, anyone else like super big that, TCU, um, you know, Auburn isn't on here. Like, uh, I'm, I'm sure I miss it. South Carolina, just because Virginia, just, just so just because you're national championship caliber, like that doesn't mean that your jersey set is. And obviously, uh, while this is a wholly objective list, like some of this is, I guess, kind of subjective if you really want to get down to it. Um, it is what it is, I guess. Uh, I. I don't like some of those uniforms at, at the end of the day. And, uh, you know, so that that's, it's not that I forgot that the reigning national champions exist as has been suggested on Instagram. Um, <laughs> but the, it, it, it is kind of interesting that some of the, the program's greatest or some of the sports greatest programs right now have, kind of struggled in this and I'm sure that those programs don't view it as as them struggling uh, but I look at UCLA which was a jersey that I was wholly prepared to to rank on this list until I realized that they futzed with them again this year and it wasn't a good change I felt like and so they're not here but if we did this list a year ago like their white pinstripe would almost assuredly be on this list but they uh, they, they went and they tweaked them a little bit and uh, so now they're not ranked so Maybe in a year, we'll come back, we'll do this again, and we'll have a whole new set of jerseys from some of these schools. And, uh, you know, it, the, the list will look a little bit different. But, uh, you know, that, that is also part of why we, we 
defaulted more towards the timeless looks, the classic looks, because, uh, you know, I don't think LSU is confused about what it's doing. You know, I don't think UNC is confused about who it is as a brand or, or anything like they can go in and tweak those Carolina blue uniforms and they do every once in a while and they still come out looking really, really good. So, uh, you know, I, I, I do think there's, there's a lesson there or, or a lesson with Texas, which recently went through a, a significant uniform overhaul and came out of it looking really good, just like they went into it looking really good. But you can tweak things. You don't necessarily have to, it, it can be done, but you also just kind of stick with what got you there and, and you'll, you'll come out of it looking pretty good. All right, so that is going to do it for us on the Baseball America College podcast for today. We will be back here on Friday. Again, we are going twice a week throughout the spring at the very least. Uh, first episode of the week is typically the newsy one. That was today. And then the second episode is when we rewatch a classic game and uh, bring you a discussion with, uh, with somebody who was, a, who was a part of that game. So, Joe, why don't you tell them what we are watching this week? We're going to go not too far in the past. We're going to go to the 2018 Gainesville Super Regional between Florida and Auburn. It'll be kind of nice to, to, to rewatch a game that's still very much clear in our minds. Um, you know, Teddy and I could probably talk about this game just right now, you know, if we had to. That's kind of how, how recent and how, uh, you know, memorable this game was and how impactful this game was and there, there's a lot of stuff going on here there's obviously the, the Florida piece of it and what they would go on to accomplish there's also the Auburn piece of it where they 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 they, they take a loss here I don't I'm, I'm, I don't want to spoil all of it because it's just such a, a to use a, a phrase that you used last week Teddy it's just that there's a good payoff here and and so I don't want to to jump all the way there but you know it's a tough loss for Auburn and but all they do about that is come back in 2019 and then get to Omaha themselves. And so I think that ends up setting a nice stage for what they accomplished in 2019. So it's good memories of players from the not so distant past, guys you remember, guys you saw play recently. So that's kind of, that'll be kind of nice. And it's just on top of everything else, a really good game. And it'll be fun memories for me because it's one of those games, as we mentioned last time, that I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing and what was going on as I watched this game. So it should be a lot of fun. Yes, yeah, so check that out. You can watch it on YouTube. Joe has a post over at baseballamerica.com where you can find the link. Uh, this is in uh, part two of the classic games you can watch on YouTube. So we're, we're working through that list, and, and you can find it there if you want to rewatch it. And if you do, uh, let us know any questions or thoughts you have about the game, and we can work them into Friday's podcast. Uh, you can let us know those things either on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy B.A., or if you leave them uh, as a review on iTunes, we'll, we'll certainly find those, those there as well. And you can make sure you're subscribed to the podcast while you're over there uh, on Apple Podcasts. I guess it's Apple Podcasts now and not iTunes. Uh, so yeah, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you're finding podcasts, you can find the Baseball America podcast. And if you're, if you're subscribed, it just goes straight to your phone on Friday and you don't have to go rooting around the, the website for it. Though, if you that's how you prefer to listen to your podcasts, we appreciate you uh, listening there as well. Uh, throughout the week at baseballamerica.com, there'll be plenty of content. We'll have another coaching confidential on Wednesday. 
Joe has another conference stock watch to come on Tuesday, and we will have uh, more over on the website as we continue in this extended college baseball offseason. We'll be back here on Friday. Uh, we're excited to talk to you then. I want to thank you guys for listening. Thanks to Kansas State coach Pete Hughes for joining us. Thanks to Joe. As always, I've been Teddy Cahill. We'll talk to you on Friday.